Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 11th, 2018. This is episode 2144 of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday. That means it's time for the listener call show. There's two ways to call in for the listener call show. One is to dial the phone number 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. The other is to go to the survivalpodcast.com, look for the speak pipe button. You can mash that and leave me a message through the magic of the interwebs. Either way will work. Um, today, actually, all the questions came from the speak pipe. I went into speak pipe and there was a bunch of questions in there and they were just all good. So if you've sent me a question by speak pipe and you haven't heard it yet, something either went wrong or I didn't use it because the speak pipes are now empty. Next week, I will probably go exclusively to the 800 number unless I don't have enough and have to go back to the speak pipe. I try to keep, you know, moving around and keep things going. And sometimes there's, you know, questions that are a month old and try to get things cleaned out once in a while and caught up. Uh, there was some fall behind there because of the Christmas holidays and things like that. So I think we should be getting close to being caught up soon. Anyway. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? I got a bunch of great stuff today. Some just some quick comments and some some really great questions. Uh, I actually have a, a little segment for you in the beginning, a new single shot shotgun you might want to check out. Uh, the Hatfield got me looking and I found something I think is better. Not really a call there, but just something I thought I'd throw on today's show for some variety. Uh, a question on using hand warmers as O2 absorbers. Um, the right alcohol for making tinctures. And uh, more on induction cooking with cast iron and a question on the right spatula for cast iron cooking. And actually, there is a good answer to that, by the way. Uh, baking instead of frying bacon. The advantages of ebb and flow over constant flow beds and aquaponics. Heating a large fish system in the winter. And the requirements for the use of lethal force. JR, a buddy of mine, uh, Air Force vet with over 20 years experience, recently retired, uh, called in with his thoughts on a follow-up to the question in the past on lethal force. All that more in just a bit. Before we get into your questions uh, and res my responses to them, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today, Western Botanicals. Uh, we have a question on tinctures today. I tell you who you could call up and ask for advice on making tinctures is Western Botanicals. Why? I mean, they're a company that sells herbal products, right? Wouldn't they want it? No, they they have a goal to make an herbalist in every home. So they will sell you prepared stuff or they will sell you raw ingredients so that you can make your own and they'll give you advice on how to do that. All of that and more at Western Botanicals are a pretty awesome company. Been with us forever. You know, eight plus years. I mean, again, that's like forever in the world of podcasting. Um, really great people. Really, I mean, just solid individuals and a great product line. If it's herbal and it's legal to buy in the United States, you'll find it there. And you know what? All of their stuff is either organically grown or wild crafted. So you know you're getting the best, top quality, purest stuff for your needs. And they give their premium membership out to members of the MSB. There's instructions for getting that membership for free in the MSB. That's a $50 membership that you get for free. Uh, that gives you 25% discounts on everything they sell. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, Self-Reliance Magazine. Self-Reliance Magazine is becoming the premier magazine for self-sufficiency and self-reliance living. They really are. They have a quarterly publication they'll mail to your home, and they have an online version and a Kindle version. You can check all of that out at self-reliance.com. I'm really enjoying that. This is from the same people that brought us over 20 years of Backwoods Home magazine and have evolved forward into the modern age and the online realities of the world today. Uh, some of the stuff I've really dug in the most recent editions have been the continuing saga of living in sheds and converting them into homes and moving up from one level to the next while doing that. Uh, some really cool stuff on gardening in the latest edition and always just great stuff. You'll find it all at self-reliance.com. Check them out. And if you, if you place an order or something there, make sure you tell them where you came from. This is Okay, so next up, let's go ahead and get into it today. And I wanted to talk to you about this this new shotgun that I found. So I had a question recently 
on a shotgun called the Hatfield Shotgun. And um, right about the time I was working with that, I was also working on bringing GunAdapters.com to you as a uh, a new discount partner for the member support brigade. And I was able to get that done for you. And so the fact that that question came up in uh, working with Gun Adapters was going on at the same time kind of got my head back into the whole break action single shot shotgun world. And when I when I looked up the Hatfield, these things sell for about a hundred bucks at like Academy and stuff like that. Um, I saw tons of people basically cutting it up, basically cutting the stock, redoing the stock, and then cutting the barrel off at about eighteen twenty inches in length so that it would fold nicely as a pack shotgun. And my issue with that was you're taking a perfectly good shotgun and basically making Well, it's legal, okay, so don't take this the wrong way, but a sawed-off shotgun, which basically ruins the choke. It, it, it really does. It, it makes a perfectly good shotgun into a not-so-good shotgun. Um, but I understood why people were doing it. Well, as I was kind of researching this and thinking, like, well, what would it take to re-choke it? Is it worth the time, the money, the effort? I came across a shotgun made by a company called Midland. And I'm thinking Midland is on the pathway to replace what we lost with H&R NEF when they got rid of their barrel program from some of the things that I've learned so far. Um, right now, all they have are shotguns. They make them in 20-gauge, 4, 10, and 12. The 12-gauge can be had with a 26-inch barrel, which is kind of standard for a single shot. A 24-inch barrel, which I like a lot better, is a general hunting gun. Or an 18 and a half, which is really compact. Um, really compact. Because again, remember, with a single shot, you don't have an action in the conventional sense. You have the, the chamber right up against the breech face. So when you think of, let's say, a pump shotgun or a semi-auto, that whole receiver, you take the barrel and collapse it onto back where the firing pin is. And you just take that out. That's how single shots work. There's no need for a feeding mechanism because you open it and drop one shell in. So a 26-inch single shot is, you know, four inches-ish, maybe a little more shorter than a 26-inch barreled pump because that action is out. So when you go down to 18, if you think about an 18-and-a-half-inch barreled um like a Mossberg 500 tactical or an 870 tactical with that kind of barrel on it, They're pretty short, but when you take that receiver out, you got another four inches on your overall length taken off. So I think they probably took the barrel to as short as they could and left the overall length to where the shotgun wouldn't be, you know, illegal or considered a destructive device or some stupid shit like that or require a stamp. And they, their retail on them is $150. It's MSRP. And I found one shop locally over in Hearst. I'm probably going to go over and pick one up. Uh, it sells them and they're 10 under retail, so 100 and, you know, 139 bucks, 140 bucks. To have that short barrel in of itself and not have to go through crap to re-barrel it would be worth the extra 40 bucks over the Hatfield to me. It is a black synthetic stock and that's okay when I tell you the next part about it that I, I think is really cool. I think it's really being marketed and built for the prepper market, the backpack market, the bushcraft market. The stock's hollow, and it's got spacers built into it. You can pull the butt pad off of it, and you can adjust the length of pull by adding or removing spacers from a full length of pull, actually a fairly long length of pull even for a full-size gun of like 14 and a half inches down to, I believe, 12 or 12 and a half inches. So it's got a lot of flexibility that way, plus storage capacity in that stock. So I'm, I'm digging that too, right? And it the 18 and a half folds really nice. It doesn't fold quite all the way that the Hatfield does when people do modifications to it, though I'm sure mods could be done to make it do that. But it is a slick-looking gun. Now, here's the good part. The scuttlebutt is on this gun that by the end of 2018, they are going to be introducing a barrel program like any FH&R had, where you can get new barrels for your gun. So you can take your little uh, 12-gauge that you have, your backpacker, and you decide you want a 20-gauge. Instead of buying another gun, you just buy a barrel for it. And apparently they were smarter than any FH&R. One of the things that made that program unsustainable, in my view, was you had to send your gun in to get it fit. So you had to order a barrel, you had to send them the gun, and then they had to fit it. 
and because there was different tolerances from receiver to receiver, which always to me was stupid. Um, it seems like Midland has made sure their tolerances are tight enough where they can just sell you a barrel like a TC Encore. Well, a gun that's selling for $140 on the street, the barrels are going to have to be cheap. I mean, you're going you're gonna to have to be talking $30, $40 for a barrel. And apparently they're going to have things like .357 Magnum and other low-pressure pistol and rifle rounds in this program with a $150 base price on a new gun versus the NEFs when they were, you know, the base price on their, their rifles were around $240. So I think we have an up-and-comer and... We also are going to have, you know, one of these things that becomes somewhat of an addictive and a tinkerer's thing, which should be probably really, really cool. Anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes to the website. They don't have a huge distribution network, but they have a dealer locator with four different locator services on their site. I checked to a couple different places that were listed, and they didn't get back to me, but I found one in Hearst, and I have them right on the website that they have them in inventory. They have the 410s and the uh, the 12. I kind of don't like that they don't have a short-barreled 20-gauge as part of their inventory, but I guess you got to start out with what's going to sell well for you. But I think in a really light single shot like that, 12 is pretty brutal on the shoulder, and the 20-gauge uh, is probably the sweet spot in this gun. It really is. Now, of course, with a gun adapter, 12 to 20 adapter, you can shoot 20-gauge out of it. So I'm just saying there. Anyway, guys... Um, Not a question this time, but I just thought you'd like to know about this gun, and you might want to check into it and learn more about it. With that, let's go ahead and take a question on using O2 absorbers uh, or using hand warmers as O2 absorbers. Hi, Jack. This is John from NorCal. I have a question. You've talked about using hand warmers as oxygen absorbers over the last year. However, I don't think I've ever heard you say how you use them. Do I tear them open, activate them? Thanks. Okay, so let's let's uh, just answer the question and then give a little bit of detail on exactly why this works and how this works and what's what's going on. Okay, first of all, as you might imagine, hand warmers are a fairly large little satchel, right? So this is really best for doing large containers, like let's say a five-gallon bucket that you wanted to put an O2 absorber in. Uh, they work really well for that. They'll work for anything. But, you know, putting one in a quart jar is a bit of overkill, all right? Um, but all you do is you do open them, but you don't tear them open, okay? So you, they come in a, 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 a plastic packaging, and that is so that they don't activate, right? And the way they activate is when oxygen comes into contact with the chemicals inside them, they begin to absorb oxygen, and that, that causes heat to occur, And they're, by the way, they're not just good as O2 absorbers. They're good for their intended purposes. Uh, they have changed my life when it comes to hunting, especially stand hunting. Um, and when I'm working on my property and I'm doing like freeze preparations and stuff and it's cold, like it's, it's cold as hell right now, guys out there. Uh, and I've got to go out and do some things and, uh, get ready for the next rash of freezing weather coming through. So pipes don't burst and stuff. I usually put a set of those in my pockets of my jacket. Uh, but when I'm sitting on a deer stand, I'll have them in the pockets of my jacket and I also will put them into my boots. And like I said, they will, especially when you're not moving, you're sitting still hunting. It's, it's just night and day, the difference having warm hands and feet. But let's talk about what's going on and how they actually work. They are exactly the same thing as the O2 absorbers you buy for O2 absorption, except they're larger. And when it comes to like large amounts, they're actually in many ways cheaper. And like it'll be probably right about now when they're starting to clear out all the hunting stuff at department stores. A lot of times you can get them stupid cheap, like the big package of like, you know, 20 sets of them, which is 40 of them. You might see that go on sale for half price. And they're not much to begin with, but I've seen like the big bags of them like that go down to like four bucks. And that's just dumb cheap. I'd buy them just to have them for their intended use when they're that cheap. Well, the way an O2 absorber works is it's basically iron filings with some chemical in there, and I can't remember what the chemical is, but what the chemical does is it causes the iron to rust really fast. That's all that it is. It's little metal filings of iron and these chemicals that cause iron to rust. The chemicals they use in a hand warmer are the exact same ones that are in an O2 absorber. Now, I guess the packaging isn't food grade or whatever, but this isn't something you like 
put in with your food, you'd take something like, you know, your food in bags and then put those into a five-gallon bucket, and then you would put your O2 absorber in there. And I'll tell you what, if I was, I've got some, some beans and rice as like the long-term shit at the fan, total end-of-the-world food storage, um, and, and those I did with five-gallon buckets and, and these things, and you just throw it in there and put the lid on, and I don't worry about it. Um, but when iron rusts quickly... We call that rust, right? It's still just rust. And what is rust? Rust is iron oxide. So when iron rusts, it oxidizes. When something oxidizes, what it literally means is it bonds with oxygen. So as iron rusts quickly, it grabs the O2 out of the air and bonds with it and locks it up in the form of rust. And if it's in there locked up as rust, it can't be out in the open and therefore it deoxygenates the area that it's in, up to the capacity that it's capable of. In other words, if you put one of these in a completely empty five-gallon bucket, it will completely, probably, 100% activate and, and, and be done with itself. If it's mostly full, it'll take whatever oxygen is available. This is something you need to know about using O2 absorbers in five-gallon buckets, though. Um, it can make it almost impossible to remove the lid, and you need to get one of the wrenches or uh, you know, to remove the lid, Or you have the plan that, hey, you know what? When uh, when I'm opening these, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll drill a hole in the damn lid. Uh, but if you want to to you know periodically open them, uh, it can get to the point where you cannot get the damn thing off. It's it's pretty impressive the amount of vacuum you get. You can do gamma seal the gamma lids where they they you know the, the thing snaps on the bucket and then this it screws on and off and they make a wrench for that. To me, those things cost more than the bucket themselves, and I just haven't found them worth the effort. Uh, a five-gallon bucket lid is like a dollar at Walmart, so you can just buy some extra lids, and if you need to get in one, just drill a hole in it and go on about your life. Anyway, that's how it works. Let's take another one. Afternoon, Jack. My name is Ed in Georgia. I'm calling in reference to tinctures. I'm interested in getting started with... Uh, Tinctures using fresh or dried herbs and leaves and such. I've started dabbling around with essential oils for uh, health reasons and such. And a friend gave me a uh, a nice bag full of olive leaves and was interesting on how to make a good tincture with that. Should I use vodka, brandy, rum, or some other solvent? I want to know what your experience with this has been or if something for the expert counsel. So you need assistance with that. I would appreciate it very much. Thank you. Well, it's actually a really easy answer. You can make a tincture from fresh or dry herbs. It doesn't really matter. An olive leaf is something that people do make tinctures out of, so there's no reason not to go ahead and give that a try. Um, but my answer is I use cheap hunter-proof vodka. Uh, there's a lot of people that like to go up to like an Everclear strength and then dilute back down with water to somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 140 proof versus 109, what is it, 189 proof or 192 proof that Everclear is. I don't find it necessary and I don't find it that it, it really will do that much more for you than something like Hunter Proof Vodka will. Um, you can use anything, the standard, you know, herbal medicine maker answer would be anything above 80 proof. Um, but I find that if you're buying cheap vodka, and if you're making a tincture, I don't advise you, you know, to be going there and getting Kettle One or Grey Goose or Tito's or something like that. You know, you're, you're talking like Ghibli's or something like that. Um, Hunter proof cheap ass vodka ain't much more than the 80, so why not have a little bit of extra proof uh, to do a little bit more extraction for you? So that that's what I do. As far as making it, I mean, I usually follow some sort of a known recipe. But in general, you can fill up a, you know, like a pint jar loosely with an herb and cover it with alcohol and seal it. Now, different herbs have different extraction rates, and you know, some herbs have active compounds that can actually, in large amounts, be somewhat dangerous if not used properly. So I, I recommend always consulting uh, with a, a known recipe or a known volume of, of, of use. Uh, when doing tinctures because it's a much more concentrated thing uh, than doing something like a, an infused oil because you're, you're getting a lot more of the compounds out of that herb. Um, I also would tell you, like, olive leaves are freaking bitter. 
Um, it may not matter depending on how you're going to use this, but adding something that is a, a, a little bit sweet or a little bit distracting of the bitterness uh, may be useful in a tincture with olive leaf. So that would be something to consider there. But that's really all there is to it. I mean, my I'm going to go back to my number one recommended resource for if you want to get into making herbal medicines is the Herbal Medicine Makers Handbook. If I could have one book on herbs, it is the one that I would have above everything else, and I'll put a link in today's show notes to it for you. Hey, Jack, this is Richard from Hockley outside of Houston. Wanted to call with a follow-up on a bacon press deal. Uh, we actually cook our, our bacon differently, so we don't need a bacon press or any fa fancy pans or anything. We cook our bacon on a wire cooling rack that you put your pies or cookies on or whatever, and we put that on top of a cookie sheet and put it in the oven. 350 degrees takes about 20, 30 minutes. Everybody's ovens are different. If it's burned, it's because you burned it. If it's floppy, it's because you made it floppy. And uh, when you make it just right for us, we make it where it's kind of crispy and it just falls apart. It's awesome. Bacon grease is clean. The bacon is delicious. And it's really super-duper simple and easy. You just throw your bacon on the, on the rack, throw it in the oven. You don't have to touch it. You don't have to cook a couple pieces at a time. It doesn't curl up. It barely shrinks. It's awesome. So if you want to be able to cook bacon without actually even really doing anything, throw it in the oven, 350, on top of a wire cooling rack that fits inside of a cookie sheet. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. You know, it's really a good technique. It's it's not something I do a lot because a lot of times when I am in the need of having some bacon, something else is in the oven or I can actually just get – if I need a couple slices to go with some eggs, I can cook a lot faster than I'll wait by the time the oven heated up. If you're going to make a lot of bacon or you have time to do it or uh, you're going to – you know, I mean, it does take about 30 minutes, so it works out really well. A lot of times when you are doing breakfast for a lot of people, because it'll be done and out right at the, you can do everything else and time it. And, and I will say this in support of the caller, a lot of chefs, this is how they always do their bacon. Because you get a uniform result. Once you figure out how long to cook it in your oven at what temperature uh, for what type of bacon, you always get the same results. And you get a really great result. And I think probably the most advantageous thing that there is is the, the the nice, clean, unburned grease that comes down the bottom of that pan. And honestly, I need to make one of those pans like that as an item of the day. It, they're not just great for cooking bacon. There is so many things those types of pans are good for. And uh, maybe next cooking show will include some other things you can do with a pan like that. I still like a press. Because it's not just for bacon. Like I've said, I mean, I use my, I have a very old press, probably, you know, three times my age or something I found at a uh, an antique mall. And I get much nicer sears on things like chicken breast because of that, that weight forcing down on it. So I, I still like the use of a press, but I can't argue with the results you get from bacon, your bacon, right? Bacon, your bacon. Anyway, I have two things now on cast iron, and I'm just going to play them back-to-back because -back, one is just kind of a tip, and then the other one's a question. So I'll play them back-to-back -back and come back with one response. Uh, let's go ahead and do that now. Hey, Jack, a little follow-up on the cast iron and glass induction cooktop thing. Um, we looked into them last week, and apparently they sell a silicone mat that you can put between the pan and the glass top to prevent any mess or scratches or whatever. Just thought it was a good idea. Makes sense to me. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jack. Question. What spatula do you recommend for cast iron cooking? I hear people say to never use steel ones and only to use silicone or wood because steel will hurt the seasoning on the pan. Then I hear people say to only use steel because it helps scrape the pan to a smoother surface through time. Which one is it and why? Would love your opinion on this subject. Sorry if you covered this on a previous episode that I may have missed. Thanks for your show. MSB member, Nathan. Okay, so on the, the induction cooktop, I I don't know. I mean, if that works, great. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense, I guess. Uh, I, it's a little weird to me that you would have a piece of silicon between the induction surface and the pan, But if, I mean, a lot of that stuff works in ovens and stuff like that, so why not, I guess. I, 
it's again, it's a little weird to me, but if it works, great. Uh, if anybody's done that and are happy with it, let us know. Um, and I guess you can check into it. If they sell it for it, and then you know it works. Because if you sell something for something that doesn't work like that, involves heat and it messes up, you end up with problems as a company. Uh, next on the spatula, the answer is yes, steel. Steel. You want a metal spatula when you cook with cast iron. I don't care what anybody else says. Uh, I'm not completely anal about my cast iron. Somebody sent me a cartoon. I don't remember the, the, the website that made it, but... It's like the one the guy was telling the girl how to take care of cast iron, and by the end of it, it was something like, you know, once every year you have to go to the desert and put salt on it and sand or something. And she was like, I have to go to the desert, and he takes it back. He's like, if you won't do that, you don't deserve cast iron. I'm not, I'm not that bad, but there are certain things that you do with cast iron if you want it to perform optimally. I don't know where this shit about using you know, synthetics or whatever, rubber spatulas and silicone spatulas uh, came from a cast iron. If you think about cast iron cookware and its genesis, um, it was around and being used and, and better than it usually is today, 200 years ago, when all of that shit didn't exist, what do you think they used to cook with their cast iron back then? You know, they used metal utensils, because that's what they had and that's what worked best. I actually do have a recommendation. It is a, a pancake turner is what it's called. Uh, it's made by a company called Dexter Russell, and it is the best spatula in the world for your cast iron cooking. And I have to give credit to Paul Wheaton. His article on cast iron cooking mentions this spatula. I tried it because it was 15 bucks, And it is a fantastic spatula, period, but especially for cast iron cooking. Uh, and if you want to see it, I have a link in the show notes where you can uh, learn more about it. And it's what I would recommend, and it's what I have, and it's what I use. I do have some other wood-handled metal spatulas because, well, they disappear. And I can't find them because my wife put one in the dishwasher, even though I don't want wood-handled anything going in the dishwasher. One got put in the wrong drawer. So um, I have some other ones that are not this because I already had them. Uh, but my other recommendation with a spatula is wood handle. Uh, you can certainly burn wood, and it, it can happen, but in general, if you lean it on the, the thing while you're cooking, it won't melt, Where I get, and it probably won't catch on fire, and it probably won't even burn uh, if you're paying attention, and you're only doing it because like, you mix the stuff around and you set it there for a second, uh, but when you eventually do that with plastic, it will melt. And that's not good. And that stinks. So wood handle, stainless steel. Uh, and uh, take a look at the one I have in the show notes for you. With that, let's take the next call. This one is on the advantages of ebb and flow over constant flow beds in an aquaponics system. Jack, what's the advantage of an ebb and flow bed versus a flow through bed in your aquaponics system? Thanks. Well, let's uh, let's talk about that. So I, I take it from the question that you mean when you're using a media-filled bed, like something filled with lava rock or expanded shell or aquaponics, hydroponics pebbles, uh, something like that. Because my actual favorite method of aquaponics is a wicking, a flow-through wicking bed where we have soil because you can grow anything in soil. But there are certain things that ebb and flow and media-type beds do really, really well. Uh, like cause things to root, to grow fast, and certain vegetables just do fantastic in ebb and flow. Cucumbers, I have never seen cucumbers grow the way they do in a good balanced aquaponic system with ebb and flow. All right, so let's talk about what the difference is. So an ebb and flow bed is exactly what it sounds like. Water comes into the bed, it fills up to the top, and then a siphon is triggered or some other mechanism, there's other ways to do it, where it drops all the water out very, very quickly, and then it slowly fills up, and it drops out very quickly. The advantages to that for the system is you're getting a, a, a basically a, a, a double filtration. You're getting the water coming in and creating a filter cycle as it fills, and then a second filtering as it drains. And you're getting that back-and-forth motion in your filtering. For the plants, the big advantage is they get all of that nutrient and moisture brought to their roots, and then when it when it drains, they get oxygen. And then they get water, and then they get oxygen. And they get water, and they get oxygen. They get water, and they get oxygen. If you think about the majority of the plants that we grow in an ebb and flow bed, these are not plants that grow in the water. 
right? They don't want to be submerged in mud, and they don't want to be submerged completely in water. They generally would grow in soil, and good soil, of course, is loose and friable and easily turned, and that means there's lots of air down there. They need oxygen. So if we're going to grow in water, and we're not going to be growing plants that have adapted to grow in water or in muck, we need to provide them a lot of oxygen. And that's one of the main things that happens there. It's also very good for the bacterial health of the system overall. All right, so can we do a constant flow, or a flow through as you call it? Yes, and there's a couple different ways we can do this. And one basically would nullify the difference. Okay, So one way we can do it is we can keep the flow level, or the I'm sorry, the, the overflow level relatively low so that the water is going fairly far down through the system before it overflows. And then that way there's an area that is always you know, full of water, uh, but there's also area that maybe just is kept damp and moist through the flowing of the system through. The problem is it gets relatively dry relatively quickly higher up because you have to run your, your speed fairly slow to let this happen. And eventually you end up with you know, waterlogged roots down at the bottom. Or the other problem is that when you're putting new plants in, they're not going to be able to get deep enough to get enough moisture, and then they get a lot of stress and or die because they basically die of a drought. Now, there are certain plants that do well in a constant flow bed, and you can keep the water level very high so that they never dry out because they're aquatic plants. So... Um, Water chestnut actually does really good in a constant flow bed. I imagine taro would. I don't know if anybody, you know, growing taro in a in an aquaponic system. I don't. It's more of an aquatic plant. But anything that would grow in a marsh edge bog type environment, um, bloody dock, uh, which is red sorrel, red vein sorrel, is a good water plant. A lot of irises and stuff you were doing ornamentals would probably do fine because they grow well in bog edge environments. Now, there's another way we can do this. We can set the level of overflow relatively low, but the speed of water flow at a fairly high speed with our control valve so that even though it never overflows, right, it does really saturate the, the system as a whole. And we can put the pump on a timer. Let's say 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off which will actually use less electricity. This will effectively act a lot like ebb and flow because you'll have a high rate of flow into your media bed, and that'll actually supersaturate the media. And then the pump just kicks off, and then the water just drains. And that works okay. Now, we do have to keep some level of a stand-up pipe, so there will be some portion in there that will never fully you know, vacate the premises, so to speak. And because if, if we don't, we're not going to get enough buildup, or we're going to be running it too high. And to me, this is this will work, but it works better in different environments. So I've seen this done with, let's say, a system built on five-gallon buckets, and all the buckets have a little trickler to them, and then they drain out the bottom somewhere into a sump. Okay, and then that way the water's trickling down through that long vertical cavity. And it seems to work really well. It's almost like a Dutch bucket type system there, except that we do end up with that shut off. And when that shuts off, we have a chance for all of that water to kind of trickle out and we get a nice aeration of our roots. That's another way to do it. Another way to do it is with solenoids so that we have basically a constant flow bed that acts like an ebb and flow bed. So you have a stand-up pipe that causes the water to rise to a, a very high level in the system. And then you have a secondary stand-up that has a much lower setting, so as low as possible for an overflow. And onto that one, we put a solenoid, just a simple open and close solenoid, and we put that on a timer. And the system maybe opens that solenoid for 15 minutes you know, every half. So it's closed for half an hour, and it's open for half an hour. It's closed for half an hour. It's open for half an hour. And when it opens, the water flows straight through really, really quickly. And when it's closed, the water builds up, and it can act like an ebb and flow. So there's lots of ways to do that. But the key is getting oxygen to the root system 
or we have to grow plants that are adapted to grow in constant wet conditions. That, 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 that's the choices there. Ebb and flow is awesome at doing so many things, including rooting plants, recycling vegetables. That's why I like it. A constant flow actually, though, has less point of failure, right? So there's no bell siphon there. So there's no, so like it's much easier to not have problems and have to keep tweaking stuff. But when you get your bell siphons dialed in, they become very, very consistent. So I, I, a lot of times I think people ask this because they're like intimidated by building ebb and flow. It's really easy. It's a pipe with a hole in the bottom with a cap on the top. That's it. Right, if you build constant flow, you're, you're like inches away from having a bell siphon system. You still need a media excluder in your stand-up pipe. Now you need another piece of pipe to stick over top of it. So don't be intimidated by it. Uh, let's take another one. This one on heating a fish tank in kind of a unique way. Hey, Jack. I've got a question for you regarding raising trout from eggs in a tote. Specifics. I'm in Ohio, and of course it's the winter time here. It's cold, and I want to raise some trout from eggs. Uh, I have a two-acre pond and some other options eventually uh, to deal with them when they get larger. But initially, in the tote, in the winter time, uh, ideally uh, they develop from a temperature uh, 52 to 55. Um, but they, they can do okay. They just won't grow as quickly down to 32. My question is regarding heat. Of course, it's cold here and I'd like to maintain the higher temperature for optimum growth. Um, I was thinking about how to heat a 250 gallon tote. Uh, I came up with maybe a waterbed heater underneath of it. I've got a, a regulator that I built for um, hatching eggs and uh, making yogurt, things like that. But um, I'm scratching my head on the, the heating of the uh, tote part. Uh, any suggestions would be appreciated. Thank you very much. Okay, I think we have somebody using the term tote again as like a Rubbermaid tote and actually meaning like the Rubbermaid structural foam stock tanks. I hope so because 250 gallons is a lot of volume. And uh, if there is any kind of like a thin Rubbermaid type thing, it probably would not handle being filled with water for very long. I also don't know of a 250-gallon stock tank. So I assume you either meet a 150-gallon stock tank or a 300-gallon stock tank. And I think you could heat either one of them uh, using a standard aquarium heater would be your best bet. And there is only one brand I would recommend. And as much as I love it, I cannot pronounce the name because I don't speak German. Um, I do know the second word, but the first, the company is called Ahim, I guess, E-H-E-I-M, Ahim Jaeger, Aquarium Thermostat Heater. They sell a 300-watt heater for $34.99 on Amazon. I will have a link in the show notes so you can go see it and get it on Amazon if you want to. Or if you go to, if you have a local PetSmart, they sell them, and this, it will be, when you look at the larger uh, tank heaters, they exclusively sell these. So if you're buying one for like a 10-gallon tank or something, they might have a couple different brands. But in my experience with PetSmart, they sell these and these alone when you get up over 200 watts. And there is a reason. When they sell you something, they don't want you to bring it back. And most of the higher wattage heaters in the aquarium world shit the bed very, very quickly. That's why they sell them for half the price because they only last one-tenth as long. Okay? These are German-made. I know how to say Jaeger, thanks to Jaeger Bombs and Jaeger Meister. Again, Ahim, I think, is the way that you sell the, the, the name of them. But in, in talking to people at this you know level in aquariums, no one that's in the know uses anything else. If you go much higher than this, you're moving on to a type of heater that's a lot more like a heater for like a, uh, a hot water heater and you're using an external thermostatic control mechanism or something like that. This is about maxed out with a off-the-shelf plug-in product that you set and stick in to your tank. There's a, a big thing I like about these, and they have what's called an adjustable thermostat, I guess is the way that they, they call it. Um, the way this works is it has little indications on it. It says, like, well, dial it here to set it for, let's say, 68 degrees. 
And the thing about that is, depending on where you put it, it may or may not end up holding 68-degree water for you. But you put it in there for a couple days, and when the water stabilizes, you can actually change where that dial says 68. So now it's calibrated to the environment that you have it in. Let's talk about how many of them you need. If you are doing a 150-gallon tank, you probably need one. I kind of would recommend a 100 to 150-gallon tank for what you're doing because if you're putting trout in it that you're hatching as hatchlings, they don't need much space. You're talking about very tiny, itty-bitty little fishes that are probably going to graduate and go somewhere else that doesn't need to be heated later on. Okay, Now, how you're going to handle... Doing this, I don't know. I mean, the way hatcheries do this is they take a, a, a egg-laden female and they, they kill her and they slit her open and take her eggs out. And then they take a male and they squeeze the sperm into the little mixing jug and they mix it up and fertilize it that way. And then they, you know, after those eggs uh, hatch, they put the fry into a grow-out tank, just like you want to. I guess that's what you plan on doing, except I don't think you can just make trout do that when you want them to. Uh, so how you would do that now when the trout have spawned in the fall, and then some other trout do spawn in spring, I imagine, um, I don't know. So if you can crack that, that's fine. Here's the, here's the key to making this work. I have two of these in a 300-gallon structural foam tank right now. I have had days here into the low teens. I have it in a barn now, so I would say this needs to be inside some type of a building. Uh, but I have had no trouble maintaining temperatures in the high 50s, low 60s, even when it's that cold. And even when the temperature inside the barn is reading below 30 degrees. The key is I've taken structural foam insulation, your foam board insulation that you can buy at like Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. And I've cut that out and the majority of the surface is covered with a floating piece of that. So that I can use for rafting and aquaponics or whatever. But just covering that makes a big difference. A mistake I made because I had a piece of it laying around and I should have done this. Putting a piece of it on the ground and setting your tank on it so you insulate it from the ground. Everybody thinks the ground is good insulation. Buried in the ground is good insulation. Sitting on the ground is poor insulation. The ground leaches heat away, including concrete slabs. So putting a, a, a piece of the foam board down and setting the tank on it would do even more to hold water in. And the structural foam rubber-made tanks are pretty good insulators in of themselves. 150-gallon tank, you should have no trouble keeping it keyed into the temperature you're looking to do with one of these Jaeger heaters. With a 300-gallon tank, I would say that you would need at least two. On your climate, you may need three. Uh, you do want to dial them in, and the infrared uh, temperature gun that I had on the item of the day yesterday is a great tool to get your water temperatures with at various areas in the tank and make sure you don't have hot and cold spots. Uh, but that's what I would do. That's that. I mean... They're made for that, and they're made to uh, handle aquariums up to about 200 gallons in size. So they're made now. Of course, those aquariums usually live in somebody's house, but they're made for that volume of water. Uh, again, the the smaller the amount of water, the less you need to fuss around with heating it. And I, if I was doing grow out during these months of the coldest months, I would focus down on that 150 gallon size. Uh, it would have been better for me to have used one of my 100-gallon tanks for overwintering my fish. It certainly would have done the job. The only reason I did a 300-gallon tank is I wanted it for a, a, another use later, and it made a good educational tool. From a practicality standpoint and a cost standpoint, smaller is better. I uh, hope that helps. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. JR from Oklahoma here. Um, had a comment to share with you and the TSP community after your response about a recent lethal force question. Um, background on this, this is my life philosophy, all right? I've developed over 21 years of military service, nine different deployments, and a wide variety of teachers on lethal force, both military and civilian, to include Masada Yub's MAG-20 seminar. Um, so it's not legal advice for anybody, just my philosophy that I want to share. So first thing, there's two types of force that I view, lethal and non-lethal. So lethal can be vary from guns, knives, kicks and punches, and non-lethal is anything other than lethal force, okay? So to select and use lethal force in a situation, three things have to be met, intent, capability, and opportunity. So does that person have the intent to use lethal force against me? Does that person have the capability to use lethal force against me? And does that person have the opportunity to use lethal force against me? If all three of these are met, 
then lethal force is an option for me to use. If any of them are missing, I don't choose that. It's got to be non-lethal. And also, it's not a must in this situation. If intent, capability, opportunity are there, it's not a must that I must choose lethal force. It's just an option for me. Um, just wanted to share that with the community. Thanks, Jack, for all that you do. Well, it may not be legal advice, but it's good advice, and it's hitting right on the type of thing that I was talking about when I handled a question on duty of retreat. Um, you, you can say that in any state you have that duty of retreat, but it also depends on is that retreat possible and practical in the situation that you're in. And when we, we break it down to JR's components, which I believe are actually Masada Yub's components directly out of that MAG-20 class, and man, I cannot recommend that highly enough. If you have the, the financial ability and the time to take that course, to take that course, it is the best thing in the world on this subject. But when we, we break it down to intent, capability, and opportunity, if, if you can demonstrate that in your defense... Uh, if, if you were questions on your use of lethal force, or it, more accurately, if you're attorney, because if you are in any way accused of anything unlawful in the use of lethal force, whether that force actually ended up being lethal or not, in other words, you shoot somebody but they're not dead, okay, um, then you, I mean, um, immediately you're conferring with counsel and you're not speaking without it. Uh, I, the, the show I did with Masada Yub would be a great thing to listen to. He talks about when you do use lethal force, if you ever have to, God forbid, and what you do, calling the police, etc., and what you say to them. And there is a point, and I'm not going to reiterate the whole thing. I'll just put a link in the show notes today with that interview with Masad. That once you've done that, the the next words out of your mouth, and I will be happy to help you le- to con- con- continue with you later after I have conferred with counsel. Okay, so once you've gotten to a certain point, there's not, and there's none of this, I'm not speaking until I talk to a lawyer in this situation. That's probably not the tactic to take. When you listen to the Assad uh, interview, it'll make sense. Okay, the Masada the interview, it will make perfect sense what I'm saying now. So I don't want to go into that and redo the whole thing that he does so perfectly. But you get to that point, and it's, I'm done. I, I've done, I've explained the situation. And before I, I speak any further with anybody, I will need to confer with counsel because of the situation. Well, if your attorney or you can clearly demonstrate that the person, you know, had intent, opportunity, and capability of using lethal force on yourself, it doesn't matter what state you're in. You've met the burden of proof, okay, um, with the exception being, In some of these states with duty to retreat is, did you attempt to de-escalate the situation before that became the case? And that's where you got to fall back on your own, you know, state and what their legal requirements thereof are. But in the end, when you're there, you're there. And at that point, it is the, the fact that in our country, regardless of state, we have the right of self-defense in that situation. What I'll add to it is, It's not just do they have the intent, opportunity, and capability of the use of lethal force on me, but on anyone. So JR probably assumes that you, you know that, but I kind of want to point that out. Like, if, if you're not trying to kill me, but you're trying to kill somebody else, if I see you with a knife trying to stab somebody, then I'm justified in my use of lethal force to defend that individual. The, the problem there is, do I know who the bad guy is? That's another big thing here. Do you know who the, just because somebody's winning a fight doesn't mean they started it. It doesn't mean they're the bad guy. We, we tend to always see the person getting their ass beat down or clubbed or whatever as a victim. And, and we do have to be careful with how we define lethal force. Lethal force isn't necessarily that we have a gun or a knife. If you have the capability of striking very, very hard, and you know where to strike somebody in the throat, that strike in of itself, is, if you intend it to be, is lethal, potentially lethal force. A club is lethal force when the strike is to the head. So we, we need to be careful there. And then we also need to be careful about the deployment of anything capable of lethal force, because it can create a justification for the adversary To use lethal force on us. What I mean, you're carrying a knife, let's say a knife, not a gun. 
you're in an altercation. As an attempt to de-escalate in your head anyway, as you break content, you draw a knife and say, hey, back the F off, buddy. I don't want to do this with you, but I will. Even though you're attempting de-escalation, especially if there's no one there to say you attempted de-escalation, if that guy pulls a gun out at that point and shoots you, he's going to say, he had a knife, so he had the ability to kill me. He had the intent because he threatened me with it and came after me with it. So I was justified in shooting him. And that's something you have to be careful with the exposure of any weapon. My belief is I'm not removing a weapon from concealment into a point in which I actually intend to deploy it. Because I have now given justification for the use of lethal force. And potentially, even if I'm the good guy, if some onlooker happens across the event at the wrong time, I now look like the bad guy with the knife that's trying to stab the guy to death. You see what I'm saying? So with lethal force... We have to be careful not just in the application of it, but the the telegraphing that it may be coming. Because that's the other person's burden of proof as well. And you have to think about it. That's why we've had conversations recently about keeping our shit inside, our heads right, with things like road rage. Because you don't know if that guy that's pissed you off has a gun in the console under the seat or on his body. And if you are armed and you're escalating a confrontation that then leads to lethal force, even if you get to the point where it was justified in that moment, you can be held accountable for creating the situation. Let's, let's, let's take it back to the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman instance. It wasn't so much that the prosecution was trying to make the case that in the moment that he drew the gun and shot Trayvon Martin, that it wasn't justifiable use of force at that moment. It was also an attempt to, to demonstrate that the conflict never had to occur. The conflict never had to occur. Because he instigated, basically what they said is, well, you started, you caused the conflict... And then you, res you, 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 you relented and used lethal force in the conflict that never had to occur. And I'll tell you something about that. Had the prosecution led with a charge of something like involuntary manslaughter and didn't go for a higher level conviction, it's quite probable that they would have gotten the conviction. Now, I know I'm going to get hate mail. He was defending himself. I can't. I am not telling you what should have happened. I'm telling you that had the prosecution chosen that avenue, their odds of a conviction would have been higher. People say, well, you can go for a murder charge and end up with a conviction on a manslaughter charge. Yeah, but it doesn't work out as well that way for the prosecution. And we have to be mindful of these things. We have to be mindful of these things as armed citizens. And again, armed is a, is a subjective term. If you have a tire billy, you're armed. If you have a great big crescent wrench, you are armed. You know, it's life is not like the Three Stooges or the movies, okay? Where they whack somebody in the head with a wrench and it knocks them out, and a couple hours later they wake up and they're perfectly okay. You're talking about potentially lethal or severe severe injuries that could be life-altering. And there's people stupid enough to not understand this. I remember a story about a, 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 a Craigslist uh, robbery where the guy was baited to somewhere and gave the guy everything. And he got the guy got a, had a gun on him, but he had a hammer too. And he told the guy to get down on his knees. And the guy's like, no. He goes, I'm not going to shoot you unless you don't do what I say. I'm just going to knock you out. Ended up bashing the guy's head in with the hammer multiple times. The guy had severe brain injury because of it. And the idiot probably really thought he was just going to knock him out. Again, these things that sometimes we think of as non-lethal options can have lethal or life-altering consequences. And we need to think about the deployment of them. The um, I don't like this word, but it's the only really true word. The brandishing of them. Or the revealing that they exist. When it comes to knives, in the words of Doug McCardia, who's probably the best knife expert on the planet in my view, 
Your knife is not meant to be seen, it's meant to be felt. And I don't actually prefer the knife as a defensive tool because it is, in many instances, harder to defend the use of, even though it shouldn't be. It's a psychology thing. It's, 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 just the, it's the truth. Anyway, that brings us to the end of another episode. And uh, once again, I want to remind you guys, as always, that you can help support the Survival Podcast by simply doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. As long as you go to tspaz.com, Before you do your online shopping, whatever you buy through tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. You'll find all kinds of cool stuff there, including all of our Amazon reviews broken down by category. And you can just take a look at the most recent ones as well. Today's item of the day is an encore item I'm bringing back from about six months ago. It is one of the best preparedness products you can add to your preparedness inventory. It's made by a company I mentioned yesterday. I love eTech City. I also love another company when it comes to electronics called Anker, A-N-K-E-R. Uh, these two companies are the ones that I have found that they stand behind their shit, and their shit just works. Uh, this is the Anker Astro E7, and it's a 26,000 milliamp hour portable charger for your phones, your tablets, your devices. The reason I think this is such an important thing is because as long as we have power to our phones, we can generally get some communication through to somewhere. The cellular towers are generally the last things to go down, and sometimes even when we can't get information out over a phone from where we are, simply by moving a mile or a half a mile, we can. So we can find a, a, a base to uh, communicate from. And the easiest thing to do with your phone to make sure you can always do that is to never let it be out of charge. The next thing is to have backup charging capability. Uh, you can do a lot worse than getting one of these and getting one of the uh, power charge adapter for your car that I recommend also by Anchor and uh, plugging this into that. And when you charge your phone in your car, plug your, car, your phone into this. And that way, that always keeps it fully charged. And if you ever need it, it's sitting there in your car, fully charged and ready to go, ready to grab and take with you. Uh, these also make a lot of sense in a bug-out bag. They are the highest capacity device that's not a piece of shit that I can find. Because there are some high-capacity chargers out there, but they're garbage. This works. It doesn't flake out after a year. I've had, I've had one of them over two and a half years, and it still works just as good as it did the day I bought it. Um, how many charges can you get? An iPhone 6S can get about 10 charges out of this. A Samsung S6 can get about 7. And you can charge an iPad Air about two and a half times. That's a lot of capacity. And, and the fact that you can then top it off from your vehicle, I mean, this is like you know the camel of backup charging is the way that I look at it. Uh, I mean, if you think about how long an iPhone charge full charge lasts anyway, unless we're doing high-usage things like GPS navigation or something like that. And we should be, you know, when we're in a crisis situation, we should be uh, rationing food, water, energy, all things, right? So, I mean, you're talking, you can get by for weeks on one of these with an iPhone. Uh, or you can get a family by for a week, probably, if everybody does a little bit of rationing of their usage. You know, like, if you're not expecting some kind of com communication to come in, turn the damn thing off. Uh, but your standby power on, on phones is, is incredible anymore. Uh, and this is the best product that I, I can find for this niche. Uh, I, so much so that I do not recommend anything else. If, if I recommend anything else because you want a smaller, lighter weight backup charger and you say, well, what do I get then? Then get one of the, the Anchor Astro lower, uh, you know, the smaller, same product, smaller capacity. That, I mean, I don't recommend anything else. Um, I'm not saying I, I, that everything else is shit. I'm saying if you're going to spend good money on something like this, this is the best to buy the best because the price differential in any of the other quality products is not that much, and this is that much better. So the Anchor Astro E7, uh, just the highest ranks that I can give it, uh, and will pay for itself the first time you need it. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. Anyway, again, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, this is a good show, and I'm in a good mood, and I kind of hate ending it on this song that John Adam picked out for us today, but I think music expresses a lot of different things. This one is called Mad World, and it's by Tears for Fears. This is from like 82 or 84, something like that. Um, 
this has lines in it like the best the best dreams I had are the ones I'm dying in. Um, this is a song about a very depressed young man that, that can't seem to cope with what's going on and feels like he lives in a world that in of itself is very, very mad. Here's some of the lyrics. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for their daily races, going nowhere, going nowhere, and their tears are filling up their glasses. No expression, no expression. I hide my head. I want to drown my sorrow. No tomorrow. No tomorrow. I find it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you because I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world. Children wanting for the first day they feel good, waiting for the first day they feel good. Happy birthday, happy birthday. Made to feel the way every child should. Sit and listen, sit and listen. Went to school, and I was very nervous. No one knew me, no one knew me. Hello, teacher, tell me what's my lesson. Look right through me, look right through me. I mean, this is some deep, dark stuff. But you notice that it, it focuses, as so much of this does, this type of thinking, this type of depression does, around school. Around school. You know, I did a show with a licensed counselor about bullying in schools, and we took some flag for it because you didn't give any solution to the problem. It was all about helping the child that's being bullied cope with it. Well, that's the only solution because we're not going to fix that problem on a podcast as far as the overriding problem of bullying in high school or in school in general. And the reality is you have to take care of the person that is the victim. And help them deal with it so they don't end up doing what one of my best friend's sons did and put a belt around his neck and hanging himself in his bedroom to death. And that's the type of darkness we're talking about. It goes back to school. And if I could reach our young people the, 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 that are in, of the school age, and I would even include into college in this, the most important message I think I could give to a person in this state of mind is this is not real. This is not the real world. This will end. This is not important. I know they told you it's not that important. Even your grades are not that important. All of this stress, all of these people, none of them will mean shit to you in a couple years. And I wish I could take all of you that are in this situation just out of that system so you didn't have to deal with it. But even if you do, you can get through it. This is not the way. And all of these people that you think their opinions are important, that can hurt your feelings and hurt the way you feel now and harm you, they will all be meaningless in no time at all. The majority of your life will be spent in the real world. And this misery you feel is because you're living outside of the real world. And I know people go into places of darkness like this other than when they're in some sort of an institution like an educational institution. But God, aren't the majority of them in these situations? They really do seem to be to me. And we have way too many young people harming themselves or taking their own lives today. And I think as bad as that system is, as much as we would like to just kick it and blame it, I think it is this misunderstanding of our youth that this is the way things are and that these things are really important, that what Susie thinks of you is important, that this party that everybody went to that you didn't was important, that these people that mock you for whatever reason are important. That is why it hurts them so bad. They actually think it matters. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean shit. It doesn't mean a damn thing. All of those people, you know, all of the people that I know that were shitty to people in high school, their lives are shit now. None of them seem happy. None of them seem like they've made it. All of them seem like they have loser jobs and loser lives. And the people that were the most singled out that I know from like when I went to school, they're the people that moved to another state and they're running a company now. It's, it's amazing. And the people that did well, that are still doing well in school, They were the ones that didn't harm others, that didn't single out others, didn't participate in that. The shitty people ended up with shitty lives. 
Almost like karma's real or something. If you're ever in a dark place, especially because of what other people think or say or do, remember my words. Their opinion doesn't mean shit. Your life means a hell of a lot more. Figure a way out of it because it's the only choice that you have that's a valid choice for your life. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Yeah.